0: Hiya, Duncan Green here with a roundup of two weeks of posts on From Poverty to Power um, because I've been away. I was away around holiday having a lovely uh, time in the south of Spain where I saw the sun which I haven't seen for about two months and it was beautiful and big and hot and lovely. Um, and then I came back and of course I got sick as soon as I got back to the UK and it was a bit of flu which is not a sort of neutral thing these days so I cancelled all my meetings and stayed in self-isolation, which involves sitting in front of the computer, doing lots of blogging, lots of tweeting. um, And I realised that that's basically what I do the rest of the time. So self-isolation was not a problem. Um, uh, Now I'm feeling better and I'm in catch-up mode and I have a lot of posts to try and bring you up to speed with. So let's get on with that. So the first one was (coughs) a paper by the Civil Society Research Collective which is a group of researchers from various different countries, but sort of based in the Netherlands, um, who looked at the ways that Southern civil society organisations, CSOs, interact with marginalised groups. And they also looked at the ways that they deal with closing civic space. So this is trying to understand the dynamics of Southern CSOs, not Northern ones. And they looked particularly at India, which has an incredibly rich network of civil society organisations. So, yeah, plenty to look at there. I'm not sure how much it can be generalized to the rest of the world, but it's very interesting in terms of India. So these six ways they identified and there's lots of overlaps and sort of um, between them. First is as observers. So that some CSOs in India develop long term associations with communities and advance kind of social inclusion of those communities in the sort of spaces, invited spaces created by governments. Second group is grassroots technical. So they sort of do technical advice on things like livelihoods or they help communities tap into safety nets and sort of what exists already. Third group is knowledge brokers. So that's access, both helping communities access knowledge from outside, but also helping them become recognized as knowledge, as owners and providers of knowledge themselves. The fourth is as facilitators, um, um, particularly helping you know excluded groups either within communities so you know disabled people women the elderly or you know entire communities that are seen as uh, excluded get a get a seat at the table with is sensitizers and um i took this to mean basically people who are sort of encouraging a sense of agency power within a sort of rights based approach stirring people up to to take action uh, and then the sixth is advisors. And these are people who advise both communities and, and advise the state on what is happening in those communities. So facing both ways. So I thought that was quite interesting to start, sort of come up with a typology of how different CSOs relate to marginalized groups. And then in terms of how they engage with civil society space, um, this is very interesting because there's a bit of a crackdown going on in India, as in many countries. And they identified four tactics. One is... Um, yeah, you know, working multiple entry points. Yeah, you know, the Indian state is huge and complex and multi-multi tiered, so you find yeah you, know, you may it may work better to work at state level or sub state level or at federal level. So you you find the entry points. A lot of CSOs tap into their professional networks. So their leaders, their their sort of top people have you know, been to university with the minister or whatever, and they use those links. Um, so using their professional networks. To, to get a bit of defense in terms of attacks on them from from the state or from from sort of uh, other groups. There's a fair amount of shape-shifting that goes on. So you reframe your identity to something which is seen as less um, less likely to be attacked or you pick uh, pick new issues uh, and, and go towards them because they haven't got such entrenched sort of um, for and against groups there. Or finally, you can float off the more risky bits as sort of non-registered platforms, so arm's length, sort of less clearly linked to the a given CSO. So quite interesting, uh, yeah. Paper that one. Second one was um, <clears throat> about governance diaries. Now this is a topic that came up years ago. I was sitting in a bar in Yangon with Anu Joshi of uh, IDS, and we were talking about um, governance in Myanmar. Uh, we were we were there on together on a on a sort of research trip. And I remember the book, Portfolios of the Poor, which did some um, published a few years ago now, where they did financial diaries with 250 poor people, where they just sent in local researchers every two weeks to start building a relationship with a particular family or group of families. And over time, and, and and keep diaries of how they were using their money. And over time, they uncovered this amazing ecosystem, which no one had known about, about how poor people in those three countries, which I think were Kenya, Bangladesh, and South Africa, actually managed their money. And so we thought, well, maybe we could do this with governance. You know, how would you do a governance diaries exercise? And, yeah, I, I was just shooting the breeze, but Anna is a bit more uh, dynamic than me. And she went back to IDS and set up a project on this and they've just published their first paper on on, on the methodology how do you, how have how, how they actually done this they've done it in three countries and the point of the and is part of the action for accountability uh, action for empowerment and accountability research program which is specifically looking at empowerment and accountability in fragile and conflict affected settings so um Anu and her team, uh, Miguel Loreu, Katrina Barnes and Chimite, uh, Chimite, sorry, Chaimite um, have been working on this for a couple of years in three rather scary places. So scary, in fact, that they've given them um, uh, false names so as not to compromise any, any of the researchers. So they are Sombodia, Bultan and Macondo, my personal favourite, that I'm a Garcia Marcos fan. So they said, so, yeah. what are the differences in terms of you're, you're trying to do this work, uh, getting people to record diaries of, of governance, of how do they resolve problems and disputes? Who do they turn to? That sort of question. Well, fear and repression being a pretty crucial part of life in fragile and conflict-affected states affects both the people who are being interviewed and the researchers. Um, and in fragile and conflict-affected places power is much more fragmented so in some places it's the state who's responding to people's needs for water or health or education in other places it might be an armed group it could be a faith group it could be a traditional you know traditional authority so a more fragmented set of service providers and the way they developed their diaries was getting researchers who are linked to the field sites so their local kids who've left to go to university typically um and that means that they they're known, so there's trust there. They kind of understand how things work, so they may they pick up the signals quicker. Um, Miguel called called all this kind of cut price ethnography, which I thought was rather nice. Uh, they may speak the local language, which may not be the nas- national language, and often isn't. So they're they're building a methodology about how do you develop a a, core, a a group of local researchers to do these diaries. And some of the points you know that are really interesting that came out of. What, what they've learned in those first two years. If you're reflecting regularly, you, you end up changing the methodology a lot. You know, you, you change the way you're doing it, the terms you use, the conceptual frameworks, all of that emerges as you do these diaries. So you have this kind of rich feedback system going on. Uh, and the range of tools you use varies. You try different things and some of them work. So then you adopt you, you them elsewhere and that kind of thing. So the whole thing is a much more movable feast than going in with a, a rigid set methodology and doing it. Um, the other thing that comes across is it's really hard. You know, words don't translate perfectly from one language to another, People get fed up talking about the same stuff. So you have respondent fatigue and you've got to introduce some more questions or some activities or something just to keep people yeah, interested. Um, huge investment of training um, with local the, with these local researchers, uh, both in the theory, but then in particular, you know, in the practice when they actually go and try and do this and all the problems they uh, come up with. And I've got a, a quote I wanted to read I can just get it up on the machine. Hold on a second. Should have had this printed out. Silly me. Oh, it's disappeared. Where's it gone? Yeah, right. I'll just talk amongst yourselves for a minute. I'll just get this up. Here we go. So, to examples of, of the kind of things you come across if you're doing financial diaries. In Cambodia, we were asked multiple times why God was not on our list of governance actors. Fantastic question. Um, and then one of the researchers talking about what it was like. You know, this is in, in their notes from after a field, after a visit to the community. We have started feeling that people are becoming more comfortable in talking to us as time passes. We felt this in the case of Mr X as he talked about his father's murder at great length. He does all the events that happened before, during and after the murder. He even shared the responses of the women folk in his family after the murder. Men in this region usually don't share the stories of their women and the events that happen within the family except the closest of their friends. So in a way we're becoming his friends and that's why he's opening more and more about himself and his family. By the third visit, we felt he was waiting for our arrival and was desperate to share the story. Governance diaries, the interviews, have become a source of catharsis for him. That's really interesting. Contrast that with a typical survey where you just go and talk to this guy once. There's no trust. It's probably somebody from outside the community. You don't get anything like the richness that the governance diary researchers were getting from that. So really interesting stuff. Um, The next piece was by... Enda Verdi, uh, and uh, Chidan Kumar about uh, the current meltdown in India. Um, quite a lot of stuff in South Asia in this series of vlogs, just by accident. Um, and this post is uh, reposted from Open Democracy, an excellent um, platform. I hope you all know it, and you should go and check it out if you don't. And this is called "Against Fascism in India: uh, Women Against the C- Citizenship Amendment Act." So, if you if you haven't been following. The um, the current Indian government of the BJP has has um, passed something called the Citizenship Amendment Act, which is effectively denying citizenship to Muslims, and it's caused the most enormous wave of protest, and and it's turned very violent and very nasty in some places. Big counterattacks, riots, people being burnt out. It's it's pretty grim. Um, the author argues the authors argue that the the act contradicts the constitution things like yeah you know, the equality before the law um and the the thing they particularly focus on is women at the forefront of the protests um yeah you know, organizing sit-ins defending people from attack um and it's a kind of good summary of what is a very nasty situation in india which is not over yet it's escalating all the time even since that post was uh put up i think there's been some very nasty Events going on in Delhi, for example. Just getting the pages in a row. Right, um, the next post was by Sabine Gar- Garbarino, um, called, and it, its title was Why I Avoid the Word Empowerment. And I tend to find that posts on the blog on language and the language of used in the aid and development sector get more hits than almost anything else. And Sabine's point was, Sabina's point was definitely, the post was very heavily read and tweeted and commented upon. And her view, she's a consultant, gender consultant, um, working in a number of programmes, and she sees the language becoming diluted and devalued so that empowerment, which has a very specific meaning when you read the work of people like Naila Kabir, suddenly it just becomes sprinkled on everybody's project documents. And so anything involving women or girls, um, training programs become empowerment initiatives. And she's worried that this devaluation is losing a really rich and useful word, that it exaggerates the level of transformation in what is actually fairly routine aid projects, you know, training programs, that kind of thing. Uh, it can alienate male lead- leadership. So she was involved in a program in Liberia, Working with cocoa cooperatives, and the uh, male leaders of the cooperatives equated the word empowerment with reproductive health. So they didn't see it as particularly relevant to what they wanted, which was training programs for women for the really big roles they play in drying cocoa and in quality control. So it actually got in the way of programming, calling everything empowerment. So that got loads of pickup and loads of hits, um, uh, as I say. The next post was me trying something out. I quite often just sort of try out a weird idea on the blog and see whether it uh, um, uh, flies or flops. I think this one is fair to say flopped. But anyway, I I was kind of getting fed up with the the way people talk about aid, which is you either have to be totally and uncritically for it or you have to be totally and uncritically against it. And I find both positions deeply uh, unsatisfying. So I, sort of, I turned to Amartya Sen and thought, well, OK, he's got this wonderful definition of development as the freedoms to be and to do. So has he thought or could we could we apply that to aid? So I looked at what he's written and it didn't help much because Amartya's writing is very Delphic. It's very in, indirect and sort of swirly. And he almost never talks about aid. I mean, really, all I could find was one reference to um, the Good Samaritan in a very long and difficult book called The Idea of Justice. But to my rescue, um, thanks to Severine Denoylen at um, Bath University, um, Martha Nussbaum has a much more sort of specific uh, and useful framing of Sen's ideas um, uh, in her book Women and Human Development, where she outlines 10 basic freedoms which constitute um, sort of Sen-Nussbaum sort of version of, of, of what is development. So I went through those 10 basic freedoms and tried to say, well, okay, does aid encourage them or does it uh, um, sort of get in the way? Uh, And to be honest, it was very hard and didn't quite work. But one of the impressions was there are huge gaps in the aid agenda Um, when you compare the aid agenda with Nussbaum's list, uh, in particular, anything to do with emotion, play, laughter, positives. You know, aid is still trapped in a deficit kind of mindset, which it doesn't look at the positives, really um and i think the some of the comments we've got some very good very erudite comments on the blog which basically said nice try this doesn't work um saskia uh saskia breckenmeyer came in um and said the the real problem with that is not the goals which is what you're talking about it's whether it's effective or not um so uh, david crocott came in and just basically took it apart so fair enough I've run these things up uh the flagpole, and sometimes they deserve to come straight back down again, so I don't think I'll be going back to Senator Nussbaum in conversations about aid anytime soon. The next post up was a, a big oxfam report where they 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 got lots of big cheeses in the foreign policy world in the u k foreign policy world to write a piece about okay so we're we're leaving the eu brexit is happening um the government talks about global britain um what is that what, what <clears throat> How do we ensure that global Britain is something worth having? Uh, yeah, this, this new role for Britain in a post-Brexit world. Um, and I think what, the, uh, what this paper is, which is called Values to Guide Global Britain, um, what it's saying is that um, yeah, we have a choice, really, that we can, we can make values the centre of our interaction with the rest of the world and will sort of become a bit like a large Norway, which is known for its kind of ability to, to, to get involved on a value based foreign policy interaction with other people. Um, or it can become a kind of grubby trader trying to sort of hustle good deals, always think about its own interests, using its aid to, to, to promote British business and, and become uh, rather demeaned in the eyes of the world. And it's got a rather nice quote. It says the UK must aspire to be more than simply a cold, wet Dubai. I rather enjoyed that. So its suggestion is that we need a sort of a clear declaration of the values that should underpin British foreign policy. But then also accept that that declaration becomes a litmus test, a test, so that when we make major decisions, one of the things those decisions have to do is be tested against the declaration of values, which sounds like it might might be worth pursuing, I must say next post and apologies for the length this is two weeks worth which is why i'm going on at such length um next post is about social enterprise in nepal from prakash subedi um this is something i've always been interested in which is you know uh, that oxfam and other large ngos should spin off more projects and not always try and stay in control of everything spin off good ideas and enable them to sort of seed the ecosystem to flourish or collapse and just sort of let go of things and Prakash has actually done this. So um, uh, again, back to back to the quotes once more. My computer is shut down. I have to get it back up again. Um, here we go. So Prakash works in livelihoods and uh, work, um, and, and, and is, interacts with entrepreneurs in Nepal. Um, and he found that the entrepreneurs were not getting what they wanted from the aid business. Um, so a quote from him entrepreneurs tell me they would prefer it if donors work to facilitate loans investment and other sustainable sources of finance rather than plain vanilla workshops delivered by aid workers with little business experience they want tailored support that focuses on the things that matter to them like accessing national and international markets or sales and marketing services so Prakash has said okay let's do it and so he and a bunch of other people from Oxfam have set up Grow Nepal, and they're going to work with small and medium enterprises to do precisely that, to access investment from different sources, to access technical advice and technical knowledge, and to basically be much more customer driven. And not and they will never talk about people as beneficiaries, they promise. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that, that social enterprise um, does in the future then the final uh post was a, a podcast with Sally al-huk is this kind of guru in the climate change activism world he's been to every single climate negotiation 25 of them since 1992 um and i sat down with him and we chatted about he's got a sort of typology of uh, he's divided the climate change negotiations since 92 into three phases and then he talks a little bit about the current phase. And so the three phases he's, he sees is from the first 10 years, where it was basically an environmental problem. It was greenhouse gases were being, too many greenhouse gases were being pumped into the atmosphere and we had to mitigate, you know, reduce the their emission, a thing called mitigation in the jargon. And so it was environmental ministries, environmental NGOs, it was an environmental problem. But then from, the, from 2001 onwards, there became much more attention to the issue of impact and adaptation that things you know mitigation hadn't happened therefore climate change was going to hit so develop developing countries were going to have to adapt and suddenly you had a much bigger voice for developing countries in the negotiations and development ngos like oxfam got involved and so you had adaptation as well as mitigation, the sort of twin track negotiations he sees the current wave of um negotiations as being kind of a third phase of of Things are already happening and they're happening really badly. And we're now talking about loss and damage. We're talking about justice reparations, essentially. Um, And he thinks that negotiations are in a really bad way. So he's kind of half given up on them, but half not. I try to sort of pin him down on this. And my impression is overall, I think what he's saying is, In the end, you will need negotiations because this is a collective action problem. Everybody has to agree what to do about it. But at the moment, the negotiations are stuck. You've got a bunch of major world leaders who've got no interest in them. And so you've got to go back to the mass movement, you've got to build the mass movement. You've got to work with the private sector, which is becoming much more vocal on the on the uh, things like the fossil fuel industry and leave it in the ground. And then when you've got that bigger, newer energy and maybe some things have changed in the political situation, you come back to negotiations. His final thing was uh, he just had a little sort of he's been thinking about the Glasgow conference of the parties in November. So Glasgow in Scotland is going to be the host of the next big climate change conference. And he pointed out that the U.S. election is going to be slap bang in the middle on the Thursday of week one. And so the entire tone of that COP26, the Glasgow conference, is going to be determined by who wins in the U.S. election. And on that note, happy or not, I'm not sure. I will leave you and have a good weekend. Bye.